Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Today on the show, we have Sam Jahara. Sam Jahara is a UK CP registered psychotherapist and Tavistock certified executive coach with a private practice in Brighton, Southeast England. She became a psychotherapist as a result of coming to terms with several aspects of her upbringing, mainly linked with cultural identity, as well as being raised by parents who were involved in a cult. Sam grew up primarily in Rio de Janeiro, but moved around a lot because of her parents' involvement with their guru, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, later renamed Osho. From age six, she lived in communes dotted across Europe, including the UK, and life was chaotic and unsettling. After leaving the cult in her late 20s, she spent many years trying to make sense of her profound experiences of lack of belonging and a sense of identity stemming from being both an immigrant and an ex-cult member. As with many cults, children are usually seen as objects, a hindrance, or treated as little adults. Abuse and neglect are common through the encouragement of separation of parents and children. Now in her late 40s, she is still making sense of some of these experiences and using her training and knowledge to continue to understand cults, cult leaders, and what makes people follow them. I had a great talk with Sam. I'm excited to have you hear it now. I am very happy to have Sam Jahara on with me today. It is really nice to be able to meet um, a fellow therapist, somebody who has needed to learn how to work with other people and to understand the mind, the, the inner workings to whatever degree we can understand it. And I know coming out of any kind of a situation, you have to process some of or all of what you've been through in order to be able to be present and help others. And it presents its own challenges at times. And it really is, I think, considered the most respectful way of going into the field that you have addressed your your history, your issues, um, because I, I see the other side of it at times with people who have gone to see therapists where the therapist had, I think, more issues <laughs> than the client. And that's just, you know, um, fraught with problems. So here I really value how much you have done to get to this point in your life and then what kind of resource you can be to others. And I want to make sure that's part of our conversation today, but I know just in terms of the chronology, we'll start with your history first. And the very first thing is I'd love to give you a moment to just introduce yourself to the audience. Go ahead. Thank you for having me, Rachel. I really respect your work. So I'm, I'm very excited to be here today and to be able to have this conversation with you. My story is basically I uh, my parents joined as disciples of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who some 
people may or may not have heard of in the late 70s. And when I was still five years old, uh, my, my brother was about one or two years old. And um, well, from that moment onwards, our, our lives completely changed. And as children, we went from having, let's say, Brazilian middle class lives uh, with our families around to uh, being taken into a very chaotic, very unsafe and ever-changing world of my parents following their, their guru. It all happened very quickly and uh, they were in this for a very long time uh, and I myself didn't really come out of it until I was in my uh, late 20s, I would say. Okay. A couple of things that you've already mentioned, just about a huge uh, amount of upheaval in your life. Whenever there is something that happens at a young age where the life that you know is turned upside down, it's very hard to find your footing. And then you can find yourself, I think, as a young person looking to the adults for more guidance. What's happening here? Needing to hold on, needing to know that at least something is going to be constant, and that you can master something, something's going to feel safe or the same. But when it's all changed, it's a very uh, interesting place, I think, to put you in psychologically. I'm wondering, because um, I want to come back to this idea of it being a very chaotic and ever-changing world. When you you were talking about that, do you mean within the cult or do you mean just because there was such a huge change or both? Well, both. Uh, it was very hard. I think it's very hard for a child's brain to understand what's going on. And of course, the children idealize their parents and they will go with them wherever they go and uh, think their choices are great, even though inside you are feeling completely the opposite of that. Oh, absolutely right. Okay. So going back in time, even before this, now that you've been able to find out probably a lot of information, what prompted your parents to want to get involved to begin with? Well, my parents were quite young parents, I would say. And it was the 70s. I think a lot of people were searching for something. It was primarily driven by my father, who was already having quite a crisis of his own uh, through the, I think, through having children. My brother had just been born. And I think that must have triggered something in him and sent him into a crisis. He was very vulnerable, went and did a personal development group called the Fisher Hoffman process. You must have heard of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, I haven't heard that in a long time. And there he met some Rajneesh disciples who then introduced him to, to the whole thing. And he was very seduced by it all, uh, very, very taken by it all. And my, my mother followed suit. I think she had her own doubts, but she, she was constantly overriding those doubts, which was interesting. And there our lives completely changed. I'm going to write that down about your your mother having doubts and overriding them. That is very interesting because that, right, I mean, that is a huge theme that we both come across in our work and that you came across in your life directly. Going back to your father for a moment, what was so seductive about this life of being with Rajneesh? Was it Rajneesh's personality, the teachings? What was it? Well, I could say so much about that. Uh, 
as a, as a therapist, I have my own take on it, but I also have my own experience of my father uh, and uh, and his personality. So, but probably his attraction to the guru mirrors a lot of people's attraction to the guru. So from how I see it, and of course I can't speak on behalf of my father only with as a, as his daughter. I think it was a combination of his vulnerability to narcissism, his own narcissistic personality, and the teachings of the guru. I mean, he appealed to very well-educated, middle-class, intelligent people because he was very highly educated himself. And I think my father was also longing for some certainty in his life. And, and quite frankly, I think he was looking for a father figure, which he didn't have in his own father. And so the guru ticked all the boxes. And then so that promise of simple solutions to very complex problems, I think he was dealing with extremely complex mental health issues at the time. And <laughs> You know that uh, it's very seductive when somebody with who claims to have special powers comes along and says, uh, "We are going to take this pain away from you." And here is the promised land: <laughs> if you if you follow this, if you if you do this, if you follow my teachings and uh, become a disciple, then I can sort you out. And I think that was the seduction for him and for a lot of people. Right. I mean, getting the answers of course, is very seductive. It's an interesting thing you bring up about narcissism because I have noticed that people with narcissistic tendencies are drawn to other narcissists. They can relate to that persona. They see them as sort of mentors. They see them as understanding, being in this different space um, and transcending, I think, emotion and the things that are messier, the things that are harder to deal with and being in this. I picture them sort of finding each other sitting on a throne, asking the other one to scoot over a bit so they can sit next to each other. They kind of like the power above. And it's it's an interesting thing to see that happen. I've seen it time and time again. So that was part of it for your father. I speak with a lot of ex-disciples and this is very much a theme that we discuss, what attracted and, and also that a lot of people followed him because they wanted something of what he had, but they also you know, that, that disciples then end up playing guru themselves. And I think my, that appealed to my father, you know, he, he was very much, he very much wanted to be in charge. Okay. So then am I to take from that then that he was the decider and that your mother followed or did your mom find something appealing about it for her? Well, that's the million dollar question, oh. <laughs> really. Okay. Um, but I'm still, you know, investigating. And right. uh, it's, it's a very interesting one, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. um, somebody can seem to be playing second fiddle, but actually have a lot of power themselves. And so how much power and choice she had in the matter is, um, um, I don't want to to protect her and say that it was all his decisions. He was He was the driving force but she did go along with it and she did say yes to it and I think she did get a lot from it and it's um I'm still doing some investigative work as to you know how much of that Uh was driven by her okay okay it is interesting I know I'm asking you questions that you might not have all the answers to it's more sort of wondering out loud about a couple of things as you're telling your story and there are some things that we might Never know. But I think it is sometimes good to explore it just so you understand 
how it all came to be to whatever degree, again, that we can do that. So here you were in this group. Life was very different. What I know from hearing from a lot of people listening to this podcast is they like to be able to imagine sort of the the visuals, uh, what the environment was like, what a day in the life was like to really get that kind of primal connection with your experience before we even get into kind of the mind games and the control in that way. So what did it look like when you would look around you and what was a day like when you were there? It was well when I was there. It depends where 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 there was because we moved around a lot. I went to many different schools as a as a result of of the chaos that ensued, uh, or the chaos that our lives became. Uh, because my parents were always just, uh, traveling to go and be with Bhagwan, either in uh, Oregon, Rajneeshpuram, which people have heard of through Wild Wild Country, or um, my father went to, to India numerous times, my, my, my mother did as well. And so we would be either left with a relative or uh, left in the commune schools. One commun- particular commune school here in the UK called Medina, I, was, uh, I spent nearly a year there w- without my mother, uh, you know, seeing her very sporadically, uh, not very much at all. And uh, perhaps I can describe uh, what that experience was like, because that was really the the worst experience I had uh, as a child. Yeah, please do. How old were you at the time? Just so we know. Um, Nine when I went there. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So from nine nine to ten, my brother was four. Uh, So that just puts into context for, you know, for four year for a nine-year-old, this is already bad enough, but for a four-year-old, it it must have been unimaginable to be there without your parents and with a bunch of strangers. So everybody dressed in red or the colors of the sun. It was uh, the time of Rajneesh Puram was a very, very horrible time, I think, for, for many people, but I think especially for children, because it was when things peaked and became really nasty and horrible uh, with, uh, you know, poisonings and, um, oh, right. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I think mm-hmm. people people were killed, and uh, there were, you know, the, I mean, the, it, the 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 list of crimes is huge, and and people did go to to prison for it, uh, fortunately. But I think a lot of, a lot of it went very much unpunished. And as children, we were basically uh, a liability or an inconvenience, so we we were put in these commune schools uh, all over Europe, all over the world, uh, and. With very little care, uh, the, the the parents were working somewhere else, and they were working a lot. We were also working as children, so we had very little schooling and worked, uh, worked cleaning toilets, worked in the laundry, worked in the bakery, worked, worked, worked uh, for most of the day, as I remember. And uh, yeah, school was a tiny part of that, and you basically had no one to go to if you felt any distress if you felt if you wanted some comfort if you missed your parents you know there there was literally no one to go to 
I describe this as the worst experience. And, and, you know, bearing in mind, this wasn't even very bad compared to what was going on at the school and in other places, which was, uh, you know, as very commonly happens, sex, sex abuse of children. That was happening in that school, you know, to mostly girls. It happened to boys as well. And it happened in um, most of these commune schools and it happened also in in the ranch uh, in Oregon so it happened and it happened in India so it was happening all over the place and and I and perhaps I was quite lucky to not have been sexually abused in in that way but bearing in mind that it was very a sec, very very sexualized environment so that for me constitutes sex, sex abuse as well if a child is exposed to to things too early and uh, that they shouldn't be exposed to. Right. I'm curious when you say sexualized environment. So a lot of people will talk about seeing adults doing things that normally are done behind closed doors or there being uh, conversations about certain kinds of sexual practice in front of children. Is that what you're referring to or was there something else going on? Well, closed doors, there were no closed doors to start with. Uh, there was a lot of communal, uh, I remember, goodness me, I, there was this huge hole where people slept in mattresses right next to each other. And, you know, I remember being there with with, with my mother and, and right next to you, there would be a couple having sex. That's that's an example. And, and, and so this is, uh, one one memory I have, but I I have checked that with memories of uh, from other children at the, from the time, and and it, it and it checks every time. You know, that we, we we recall uh, that that was happening. So that's that's just one example. But people, you know, were it was called the sex cult. So people were having uh, were being very sexually open and sexually free but and, and not realizing that this is completely inappropriate in front of children mm -hmm. right inappropriate overwhelming very uncomfortable it's hard for kids to know what to do with that and the emotions that come up uh, and then also for them to get a gauge about what's appropriate and what's not and how they should be touched or not. And I just wonder also if you're there with your with your mom, was she having a reaction to that or did she feel like she needed to be cool with what was happening around her? Well, it comes back to the overriding instincts and overriding feelings, right? And I and I felt that there was a lot that uh, she was overriding in order to fit in and to be uh, a part of it, to belong. But I don't want to excuse, uh, you know, that that's that's no excuse. But I, it's just uh, an interesting phenomenon because I think this overriding, as it emerges, was happening in a lot of people. At the time. Oh, most definitely. And I, I do think as you're saying it, I don't hear it as an excuse. I don't want you to worry that that I, I think that you're sort of dismissing something that shouldn't be dismissed. But it is part of human nature to do that. It happens so often that I think actually there are a lot of people who get away with a lot of things because of that being a natural reaction. And there are a lot of cult leaders that rely on the fact 
that people will find a way to make it okay or find a way to dissociate um, so that they can keep doing what they're doing. So it's all part of the scene and right. It's not, it's not an excuse. It just is. Okay. So to go back to your experience, when you were talking about being nine and your brother being four and being left alone at this place. So tell us more about that. Yeah. That was about the, I think I remember I have very bad memories from that time and, um, you know, the moving around, the changing schools all the time, moving countries all the time. That was uh, very, very unsettling. But I think the abandonment was the worst, uh, you know, being left. Uh, I think I think if you're left with relatives is, you know, sometimes it can be bad enough, but you have something that is familiar to you. You have people that are familiar to you. You have adults that you can go to. Uh, you know, in the case of my grandmother, on one occasion, I, I was left with my grandmother, who I loved, and uh, and of course, I wanted my mother. I didn't want to be with my grandmother. I wanted my mother there, but that wasn't such a, a horrible experience as being left in in a place that is completely unfamiliar with people who do not know how to look after children, who are extremely self-absorbed in a very dangerous time in the cult life because there are a lot of crimes being committed and there was a lot of uh, directions from the top, from, from Sheila, uh, Bhagwan's uh, Rajneesh second-in-command, um, you know, that was very driven by grandiosity and narcissism. And, uh, you know, the, some of the orders that she was giving at the time uh, were... Um, and that they were both giving at the time were frankly very dangerous. And that trickled down, I think, to all the other communes because they were also following orders from the top. So for us children, uh, it was very bad news because our parents were, um, the separation between parents and children was encouraged because there wasn't space for all the all the parents in that particular commune and nobody really knew much about them. I mean the guru was professing to know what was best for children which is you know it's horrendous looking back this man knew absolutely nothing about children and and the adults were uh, looking up to him and using his words as the truth, you know, that that this, if he's saying this is good for children, then this must be good for children. So he was saying things like uh, children should be raised by multiple adults. You know, it's not good for children to be in their nuclear family that will spoil children, that will, uh, you know, it's not good for their development. And, and of course, as we know from attachment theory, <laughs> So things like that, they were following instructions that were completely nonsensical and um, and for, for the children, it was not good. Uh, also, the working and uh, being expected to work. Also, you, you had to speak English. So if you were from a different country, I was from Brazil and my mother tongue is Portuguese. And so if I wanted to talk to anybody in Portuguese or if I wanted to talk to my mother in Portuguese on the phone, and that was not... That was frowned upon and, you know, you're told to speak English. If she sent me anything on the post uh, uh, or if letters were opened and read, uh, conversations were overheard, it was like uh, you were in some kind of George Orwell's uh, in a 1984 novel because it, it yeah and and you couldn't uh, and, and you had to, to behave a certain way and speak English 
and work long hours. Uh, and if you were tired and if you were not enjoying your job, uh, you were sent to meditate, to do dynamic meditation, which was, uh, you know, it was very confusing for children to be told to meditate. I mean, because you were unhappy uh, and, and uh, I suppose meditating was just made you even more unhappy because, I mean, what child goes and, and does meditation? I don't know. Um, in addition to that, uh, there were these therapy groups, these very expressive groups where people would scream and shout at each other and uh, be very expressive, which uh, was, to me, very frightening because um, they would sort of openly hug each other or openly scream at each other and or be in tears or be laughing or it, and it was all very well staged I would say you know <laughs> it, it wasn't real uh, you know it was you were encouraging people to be emotionally expressive but uh, was that a real expression of emotion I, I, I don't think so first of all most often Cult leaders know nothing about children. They know nothing about a lot of things. <laughs> I've come to realize they, I think, don't know how to get along in the world. I don't think they would be able to do it without being able to manipulate people to do all the hard work for them. And they don't know, I think, how to make a living without siphoning it off from other people. I mean, you know, they're they're actually less qualified than the people who are their followers in many, many ways. And including this, that I think once people think that they are an expert on everything, then they don't learn. And if he had read just one book about child development or parenting, he would have known he was completely off. But the thing that he seemed to keep wanting to do was detach, detach you from your parent, detach you from that connection, that primal connection, that sacred connection, the trustworthy, the consistent connection, but also the idea that you couldn't speak in your mother tongue to your parent. So then you couldn't have secrets, right? Anything private. Of course, it, what I've come to see is in, within cultic groups, things that are private are called secret, but really that you couldn't have privacy and you couldn't have that kind of nuanced conversation that you have that you have in your mother tongue. And you can't fully express how you're feeling because your language ability is going to be too limited to be able to convey what you want to convey. It really is so detaching and so distance creating, which feels very purposeful. And so I think that a lot of times when people are being pushed to do something that they say is for their growth, for their independence, it really is just because it threatens the leader to have people have those alliances. Is that what was happening here? Well, quite right. Uh, you're spot on. Of course, anything that threatened the leader uh, and, uh, well, everything that that we did was to further the leader's uh, wish or the, the leader's project or the leader's vision or whatever it might be. Nothing was about us. And if anything good happened, it was attributed to him. If anything bad happened, it was because, well, yeah, it, it's very confusing because on one hand, this cult, and uh, I believe others too, encouraged you to take full personal responsibility. Uh, you know, so they, when it was convenient for them, they put the blame on you. But uh, on the other hand, you also had to completely give up your autonomy to the guru and surrender. I mean, surrender is a word that was very 
overused. It was used all the time. You have to, if you're not, if you're not doing this, you know, if you're not giving up your your money, your children, uh, your will, uh, everything to the guru, then you're not surrendered enough. And if you're not surrendered enough, then you're you're a bad disciple. But then you also had to take personal responsibility. And, and so it was like completely at odds, uh, you know, surrender everything that you are. And that very much included the conditioning, the, the indoctrination of children. Uh, it's all about Bhagwan. All, you know, everything's about Bhagwan and you're conditioned to love Bhagwan. And on the other hand, if you were feeling bad, uh, if you were uh, feeling sad, you you had to take personal responsibility for that. You know, it was not because of what was happening around you, but because of something inside of you that you needed to sort out. So there, go and do some more meditation, right? Um, so very messed up, very, very messed up. Very messed up. You know, I, I see a lot with people who are raised in these environments where they're made to feel, again, that everything bad is on them, everything good is attributed, but that if you're unhappy, then there's some fault internally with you or how you're interpreting things, etc. And then I've noticed, and you may have noticed this in your work, when people leave either a relationship like that or a family system like that, they then set themselves up, unfortunately, to be mistreated later on and take the responsibility on themselves. And that if people are unhappy with them or if people are abusive towards them, then it must be because they had disappointed them in some way. It's very hard to then find that balance and know what is your responsibility and what is the other person's and where they need to take responsibility for that. And it becomes very hazy. Is that something that you've seen? I've seen and I've experienced it myself. I mean, the whole process of uh, leaving the cult psychologically, not just leaving physically, but leaving psychologically is, is that, you know, knowing what is yours, what is theirs, and, and that it's not all uh, down, you know, down to you, that it's not all your fault, your responsibility. Uh, you, have, you have to work on yourself if, if there's something wrong with that, the, <laughs> the other has responsibility too. And because nobody took responsibility, it's really hard. And, and as you said, that happens in cults, but of course it happens in family systems. And, and I see it time and time again. And, and this is um, perhaps having having done this work. I mean, the work is never done, right? Uh, you, you're constantly doing it. But it's interesting to see the parallels because uh, in a cult, I think you're also dealing not just, you're dealing with your family system. And on top of that, you're dealing with the cult. So you're dealing with both at the same time. I want to go back to this idea of these therapy groups that were so intensive. That happens a lot when, you know, now that we're finding out more about a lot of these uh, teen treatment centers that were abusive places like these large group awareness trainings where people are supposed to sort of cry on mass, you know, and or scream or a hug or something, but yes, it is absolutely manufactured. And I think that people do then think that they've had some sort of experience that's been useful because of its intensity, but not necessarily. It doesn't give you more insight. I think it makes you more liked as a member because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But then I can imagine that whole environment needing to go to a therapy group of any sort would be, again, fraught with so much fear 
and not knowing how it's going to go, but in any way it's going to go, it's going to be a lot and probably too much. And how often did you need to do that? I didn't go into these groups as, as a child, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> children weren't part of these groups. In fact, they were very much uh, kept out of them, not because they cared about the children, but because they just wanted to you know, get on and, and do whatever they, they needed to do. As an adult, I did take part in these groups. And um, you know, I have to say that it's, uh, it's very dangerous. And I, I have huge issues with it looking back. And still, because these therapy groups, let's uh, be frank, they are still running. They're not running in the same shape or form that they, they used to in the 70s and 80s, but they are still running. There are still disciples of Bhagwan, of Rajneesh, Osho, uh, as he called himself later on, running groups and calling themselves therapists. And these people are not qualified therapists and uh, they are causing harm to people and this is a this is a very uh, important point because the harm is still being done and i know this is not they, they are not the only people who are causing harm there are lots of unqualified therapists uh, claiming to be therapists and and offering these groups um, without any training but i think the danger in it is if you're not a clinician if you don't have the training if you're not abiding by a code of ethics if you're not accountable to a professional body, if you're not living in society, you are leading groups in a in a isolated place, and you're only accountable to the cult and to yourself. If something happens, if somebody has, bearing in mind, a lot of people were very mentally vulnerable, and a lot of, I think, quite a few people had breakdowns, had mental breakdowns, and People had psychotic breaks and, and all sorts of horrible things. So if you're not, if you weren't psychologically robust enough to survive this sort of pressure, uh, because it was pressure, then you broke. I, th it I think it did break a lot of people, uh, you know, and, and I do believe that it continues to because of the lack of skill and training in, in leading those groups and the lack of responsibility. Right. And then was it the sort of the predictable response to if someone broke, again, that was on them, not on the environment, not on what pushed them over the edge? Absolutely. I mean, there was no responsibility taken ever for, for anyone having a mental breakdown. It was uh, basically they were taken out and nobody spoke about it. They basically tried to cover up every time harm was caused to anyone, psychological harm was caused to anyone. They, they tried to cover up. That was the method. What I think makes it even more criminal is that people were not getting involved with Rajneesh to have therapy, really, and to go through something that was going to cause them a psychotic break. I think that the whole point was to have a spiritual teacher and to have a community and to have something that would offer you the answers and something much softer, but it wasn't soft at all. Uh, so I'm wondering what happened before you left, sort of what got you to that place of leaving, how you left, and then we can talk about what life has been like after. I think that the interesting thing about this cult in particular is it is a little bit different in that people after, you know, the period of 80 to 85, when it was the Oregon time, uh, that is, I think, what he's most known for, because it was in the press a lot. And uh, since then, 
there was this documentary that came out uh, that was very widely watched. So the commune, that was the, the, the time when there were a lot of communes and um, people were living communally and isolated from society. So he died a few years later. And after that, a lot of these communes, they shut down and people weren't living communally anymore. They were back in society and following, still following his teachings and traveling to India. But they, very few, actually, only a select few people lived there. Uh, and, and so it wasn't uh, an isolated cult anymore like Scientology. It wasn't uh, so straightforward that people were completely separated from the world. They were very much you know, in and out. And, and then he became quite mainstream with his teachings. And, you know, his books are still sold in very mainstream bookshops, right? And, and, and so I think a lot of people didn't see that as a cult. And because of that, uh, there was never a sense of, well, of course, he, if you're in a cult, you, you're never going to admit that you're in a cult, otherwise you you leave the cult, right? Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. for me, there was never a sense that I was in a cult because I also lived in society for most part of my life, actually. And my parents were very involved, but you know, we had a home. I went to normal school uh, for a long time as well. And so I got back into it because it was all I knew. And so I then traveled to India myself and went exploring that. So at 18, I, um, so we went back into, you know, after the communes shut down, everybody was sent home. I went back to normal school and I, I, I wasn't really, I mean, apart from my parents always having, uh, uh, always being involved as, as a child, then I was back in the in the normal world and and so I wasn't really that that interested anyway but at 18 I then became curious again and went to India went to India with my mother and then I became uh kind of sucked in again and started spending a lot of time there and and living in the the few communities that were left you know and then getting into relationships with people who were uh, followers and and so my life became embedded in that again what was the draw back to the community familiarity yeah familiarity um it maybe there was something about going back to something i knew from childhood or, or uh, at least doing something that my parents approved of uh, that my father approved of very much you know so yeah it felt like it was something that it was like being back in the family or being back in the family cult or doing something that was very acceptable sometimes there can also be a need to have it be a different experience this time that it doesn't turn out to be uh, something abusive or traumatic. And now that you're coming back to it at an older age, will you be able to just enjoy the benefits of it? And we will sometimes redo things in order to have them really come out better. It very often plays out that way, though, that people will assume that it's going to be better. And then it turns out to be just the same, if not at times worse. And so I I wonder then when you went back in, if initially it started to feel like a better experience than you remembered, but then switched back into being the same old place. I mean, it's interesting to think about that because on one hand, 
there is that thing called script in, in transactional analysis, right? The life narrative, how you see your story panning out or your story being written uh, in a way that, um, and, and then you follow that, that, that script. And I think there was a repetition also because I went back into normal life and normal society and I started finding that experience very boring and very mundane. And I think there was a similar experience that happened with my father in uh, his family life, his, uh, you know, with having kids and having a normal job and and having a mortgage, et cetera. And then he had this peak experience, you know, in this, uh, you know, personal development group and then met disciples and then met the guru. And it was all about peak experiences. So that became very enticing. And I think something similar happened to me because I grew up in, in that environment. You know, there was something very, very boring and mundane about normal life. I had started going to university uh, then and, I found my peers very boring and, uh, you know, so because because of the environment I had uh, grown up in. And so going back into it felt like like I had to do that, you know, that that was, yeah, that that it was where I was going to to find something that I wasn't finding. Uh, You know, you're, you're reminding me of what a lot of people tell me about coming out of a cultic system. And then finding the world boring, finding people boring, finding spirituality boring. Uh, They're used to a certain amount of intensity, whether it is the excitement or the fervor or kind of the fear that's looming of sort of being watched and needing to please someone and whatever it is, it gets your adrenaline pumping. And suddenly when that's not happening, it does feel boring. And you can find that people are more sort of one dimensional. You're expecting there to be conversations that have a certain amount of intensity and high level whatever and a lot of people coming out of cults don't know how to do sort of chit chat (laughs) and don't care no and you know I was in my I I went to university when I was what 17 I was really young and um, partially because I had skipped schooling you know because of you know growing up in in the cult I ended up at university at 17 you know a lot of my peers they they were behaving in a very age appropriate way you know they they just wanted to drink and smoke and have fun and 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 I thought well I'm I I feel very you know I don't know how to do this right a fish out of water as they as they say so here now you're back in an environment where you know the social rules and the constructs uh what's okay what's not okay and so then what happened what prompted you to finally leave well I realized that my life was going nowhere, basically, that I was wasting my time, my intellect, that I was being held back in, in terms of education. I was really lost. You know, that, that it, it was a, a feeling uh, of uh, very deep anxiety, actually, restlessness. Uh, I was like, I don't, I don't really know what to do with my life. And I, and I don't feel very confident either. Uh, I realized that, yeah, I'm not, I'm not finding what I, what I want here. And, and, uh, you know, bear in mind, I think that was very unconscious. It wasn't very conscious. There was something driving me to, to do something different at the time. And, and so I got, I got together with somebody who had nothing to do with the cult uh, for the first time. And I think that was a, it wasn't a conscious move. It was very much an unconscious decision, but it, it was something was driving me out. At that point, I was, uh, you know, a mid, mid to late twenties. And I, and I thought, 
if I don't do something now, if I don't start getting back into the, into the world and sorting my life out now, uh, this is not going to end up very well for me. That was the first step. So a few years after that, I, I met my my husband Mark, and I guess our paths converged. He he's he has nothing, absolutely never had anything to do with the cult, but was familiar with it, which helped in terms of being able to to speak to him about it. And shortly after that, we both started training, and uh, that was for me a very very long process of uh, gosh, I mean. Really, I mean, psychotherapy training, uh, as you know, it, it, you know, it, you you really have to look at your life, and and I think if you don't really look at your life, it's very very hard to then help your patients. And because of my my own commitment to looking inward, I guess partially driven by, you know, I have to say that if there was one good thing that I took away from being in the cult was that was the fact that you know people were really seeking. They were seeking, and they 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 wanted. They were looking for something. They were, I think they were going about it in a in the very in a very wrong way. But clearly, they they were looking for something. And there was a, a I was surrounded by people who some of whom had a real commitment to to learning more about themselves. You know, they they really wanted to know who they were. Of course, Bhagwan, uh, you know, Rajneesh wasn't going to give that to them. Although some people claim to to have known themselves better through him, but I don't think that had anything to do with him. But with people really wanting to know more about who they were, that attitude and that learning I took with me into training as a therapist, and and I I went really completely all in with it, and and spent many many i mean i'm still in therapy now but i spent many many years in therapy really trying to understand what had happened trying to you know, go through my childhood and and understand um not just the cult aspect but also the transgenerational trauma that led my parents to seeking what they were looking for in in that guru so interesting. I, I want to ask more about that. And going back to something you said, that's so interesting. I haven't thought about this in a while, about how people will attribute things to another person who they want to have been their teacher on that and want to have been the, the guru. But yes, it usually is the person's intention and desire to transform, to have insight, to grow to have transcendence or whatever it is, and that the leader doesn't provide it. And the leader often gets in the way, actually, but but you attribute it to the to the leader in so many ways. And I remember one time using the phrase uh, spiritual placebo, and I haven't thought about that phrase in a long time. It's reminding me of a time I remember not knowing if I believed in the placebo effect. And then taking some sort of medication that I, I was having tremendous allergies. I know this might seem like it's not on point, but it is. And this medicine, I waited till nighttime to take, because I know it makes you tired and I couldn't work and be on it. So I was able to then get sleepy and not, I wasn't as itchy and I could fall asleep. And in the morning, I saw that the pill that I was supposed to take was still right there next to this glass of water. I had already, I guess, become sleepy, but I had attributed it to this medication. And I remember falling asleep thinking, I'm so glad I took this and now I'll be able to sleep. I didn't take it. And it, there's something so powerful about that. And I think people do that interpersonally as well. 
um, because we want to believe that someone has that power. We want to believe that they were worth all of this sacrifice and all of this devotion also. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a very interesting expression, the spiritual placebo, because things were attributed that were being attributed to him uh, were, as you said, nothing to do with him. And I, I, on another interview, I, I described the, the the guru formula, uh, which is uh, you know you, it's somebody coming out of nowhere and uh, being you know claiming special powers or being given special powers by by other people. And uh, and there you have it. And you know you have somebody who claims to have special powers, and then people believing that they have special powers and that they're going to also be become special through following them. And, and and there you have a cult, you have a, a guru and, and a cult. Absolutely right. Also, knowing what you shared just a little while ago about what therapy was like within this group, I, I could only imagine, you know, how much you were hoping that in the world outside, that's not what it looks like. Exactly. And it's interesting going into therapy training and into therapy with those experiences of these groups and realizing, I mean, I, I became so critical of, of these groups. I mean, I, you know, I think there was that conditioning of, okay, being more expressive and, and so on. And then at the same time, the more I trained and the more I knew uh, and the more I realized that, oh, my God, this was so wrong. It was so wrong because you cannot break people like this. This is not effective therapy. Therapy, if you're dealing with trauma, you know, there is a reason why people come once a week. Some people come twice a week or, or, or more if they're doing psychoanalysis. But there is a reason for that. And the, the reason for that is that you, you can't dismantle people's defenses in a weekend or in a week and then send them back into the world without those defenses. And this is what was going on. And this is still what's going on, you know, with these intensive workshops. I mean, it's not just uh, the, the, the Osho groups that do that. Uh, there, are, there are various workshops that do that. You know, you, you go into it. You have these peak experiences your defenses are dismantled in a weekend and then you're back going to work on Monday or something like that, you know, and this is not effective therapy in my opinion, you know, it is really not effective. And, you know, I saw people not changing, you know, I saw my, you know, my father becoming, my parents becoming part of this cult for, for, uh, for so many years doing all these meditations doing all these groups and nothing was changing psychologically in fact he got worse you know he his mental state became worse and worse and uh he never left the cult and he's he never got treatment either so he never got therapy and he never got treatment and in fact he has deteriorated so much and it's so sad to see somebody so devoted, so dedicated, so believing in something that actually isn't helping them, but it's act, but it's making them worse. And that was the case with a lot of people, actually, uh, that, uh, you know, that you, you see very old disciples that are just so mentally unwell and deluded, very deluded, because they never got the help they needed. When you started noticing these changes in your father, did you feel like there was a conversation you needed to have with him about it? What what happened? That is a very long, um, 
and has been a very, very long process uh, in, in my life, in my relationship with my father, because, uh, you know, it's been extremely challenging, primarily because if you said anything against his guru, he would go into a, um, into a rage. And so the dialogue about that became utterly impossible. In fact, uh, and the, I think the most painful part in this is that he will not acknowledge how harmful that has been to his children because the guru is protected above all. And this process is something that continues to happen to this day. Whenever any former child or any uh, former disciple tries to expose anything harmful connected to this cult, they are immediately silenced and the guru is glorified and idealized and the guru can do no wrong. I'm sure you've heard this many times, but yeah, this is what's happened at home with my father and continues to happen to this day. And this is what continues to happen in the cult to this day and not, and not just in this cult, but in all cults really. Right. And that's very hard, as we know about child development, especially, but just in general, it's very healing to have another person take responsibility. People will tell me, as I'm sure they've told you, that they keep waiting for an apology from someone they don't think they're going to get it from and how transformative it would be or would have been had they gotten it, had they had someone say, you're right, or I shouldn't have, and I'm sorry. But if that doesn't happen, then you have to somehow find a way to kind of work around that, knowing that you're not necessarily going to hear it. I think sometimes it helps to understand why they can't give it to you and that it isn't about you not deserving it and you not being right for wanting it, but that they just can't see it that way or they wouldn't be able to tolerate maybe the the domino effect that or the cascade right that that would create if they really did look at it for what it was and what it did to their loved ones and some of it is so self-protective yes uh you know with my mother is is a different story i she has been able to acknowledge it so and that has been very very healing and very good for our relationship but him, uh, along with uh, you know other people uh, who are still followers or uh, still uh, love Rajneesh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, he is still their master to this day. He is still their master. He can can do no wrong. So if a child comes forward and says, you know, I have been abused in the Rajneesh communes, and actually, in fact, by people who were very close to him. And in fact, he condoned it through his messages and, and through turning a blind eye and through complete disregard uh, and through separating children from parents. If you say anything about systemic sexual abuse in the, in the communes, for people who still see Rajneesh as, as their master, it's, you, you know, you are speaking nonsense and you are lying <laughs> you know so so that 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 gaslighting process still continues unfortunately but you know there are other people who have left and who do acknowledge and and there are people who actually say i'm so sorry that i 
that I didn't see what was going on. I'm so sorry that I was so blind by it all. And I am, you know, looking back, it it was a, a completely crazy thing to do. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry I was one of these adults who stood by and did nothing. And and that has been very healing too, you know, so there, so there is both. Right, good. I'm, well, I'm glad even as an adjunct that you've been able to hear it from others and yes, it is significant to hear it from your mom. And I'm glad you've been able to do that. I'm sorry that your father is sort of digging his heels in and what and is unmovable, at least for now. We'll see. But it seems like that's going to be his process. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering then, before going to talk about your counseling work now and how your experiences are, I'm sure, informing how you do the work that you do. And whatever lingering impact too this this experience has had on you, I wanted just to make sure to check in about your brother because you had mentioned you know his experience and what that was like at that school at age four, and if you feel at liberty to say, I don't know, but I'm curious how he's doing. Well, uh, it's it's an interesting one in terms of child development because I think when the child is so young, they don't have as many vivid memories as, uh, and so I carried a lot of memories with me because I was that bit older. I was four years older than him, and so it's all very buried and very dissociated from, and no readiness to to speak about those experiences yet. So it's also a challenge. That's what I meant about the the family. You have, uh, of course, already your sort of pre-existing family stuff. Uh, you're dealing with a family system that is already quite dysfunctional because of who your grandparents were and your great-grandparents and so on. Then going into the cult, which is like another completely another dimension uh, of another system to deal with. And then you have the same family system, but completely changed after the cult. <laughs> To deal with. Uh, and so it would be interesting to write a paper about that, actually, you know, how family systems get changed through these cultic experiences. But um, so this is what I am, I continue, and the work never stops, as you know. Uh, that is stuff that I continue to deal with. Okay. So now here you are doing psychotherapy, working with people to help them with a whole variety of things. So I'm wondering specifically about how your insights from your experience infuse their way into your work now. In so many ways, I think it's very, it's impossible to to separate uh, that uh, because it very much informed who I am and my search for, for an identity again, and also the cultural aspect is very important here too, because it overlaps with the cult aspect uh, of being um, a granddaughter of immigrants and then having grown up in Brazil and then moved away and being an immigrant to this country and having lived in other countries as well. So always feeling like a, a stranger in a strange land. That's an experience that informs a lot of my work because a lot of the clients that I see uh, struggle with similar issues. So I, I'm not uh, somebody who works uh, with ex-cult members or does the type of work that you do that I admire a lot. Uh, it must be very hard. And, and so I'm not doing this type of work, but I would say that the work I do is, is a lot around identity and belonging and both cultural, uh, but also 
through so many other domains of a person's life, right? You, you can uh, feel like a like an outsider in your own family or in your own country. Or, for example, uh, boarding school is one of those experiences that uh, I think mirror a lot as some sort of former cult experiences. Yeah. So to speak a little bit more about that, I hadn't. I think I hadn't fully realized or integrated until more recently how much uh, those experiences inform who I am and the work I do, because I identified a lot with my cultural background, which is uh, you know very mixed. But of course, the cult experiences are a huge part of uh, who I am and, and how I think and how I work. Right. And so in terms of how you think, so if you can give some examples about that, I mean, you mentioned attachment before and and boundaries, exposure, really being in an environment where there was so much happening around you in a multisensory way that I think was more than you probably knew what to do with at times. So I'm just wondering about how you've been able to sort of process that, I think, even personally coming into the world and what kind of environment you've needed to create for yourself and relationship you've needed to create for yourself. I'm curious about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question uh, because I worked extremely hard to create a life that was a very different life to the life I had uh, before. I suppose there was still a tendency in me to want to wonder and to want to change things and and um, to do something different or to to seek more excitement. But I uh, had to really learn how to live an ordinary life, and I would say that that informs a lot of the work I do with my clients because. And as a society, uh, especially now, you know, everybody wants to be somebody <laughs> special, uh, right? And um, I think I think it's very hard uh, to understand that the, the you know the opposite of narcissism and and uh, of uh, that is that illusion of specialness is to be ordinary. And I think a lot of people have a lot of difficulty in being ordinary. I mean, my parents certainly did. You know, I, th- I think I had to to work quite hard at building a life that feels secure and stable and also not having that constant uh, hypervigilance that something is going to go wrong, that I'm going to lose uh, everything tomorrow, you know, because I, I, we did, we did lose. I mean, I, I, you know, everything that was familiar to me was just (laughs) uh, taken away from me, you know, you know, pets, family, house, everything was gone. And, and, and there we were uh, plunged into another world. So, to be able to live with at least some degree of faith and trust that my things are going to be here tomorrow and my home and my business and my practice and you know the things I have worked hard to build of course nobody knows what is going to happen but that that I can can build something and hold on to it nobody is going to come and take them away from me unless something terrible happens, is, is I think, uh, an experience that many people have, you know, especially people who have lost things. I mean, if you, if you think about refugees or immigrants or, you know, anyone who had, who suffered a lot of losses or, you know, um, in, in their life would be able to relate to that. 
and how that manifests in in so many ways in our lives. So we displace uh, that, uh, you know, and um, feel anxious and um, can't sleep at night. Or <laughs> I mean, that, that just uh, I could talk a long time about that, and, and especially with you. But yeah, maybe that that says enough, right? And I'm curious about attachment because going back to this idea, the the need for cult leaders usually to uh, wrench people away from their primary caregivers. How either how, how have you or how have you guided in your work people to have healthy attachments and what that looks like and how to maintain it and how not to let anyone stand in the way of it. I'm sure when people come to you and you hear about a partner that they have who's keeping them from their friends or their family, you're going to have a quite a reaction to that because that's very familiar, all too familiar. So I'm wondering about if you can kind of teach us and the listeners too about attachment and what you've learned well yeah there is the attachment aspect so the early attachments you know the exploration of early attachments and what they looked like I think that's very important and that will be important any long-term psychotherapy uh, that we explore uh, what attachments were like in early uh, childhood Uh, so that's a very key aspect in order to be able to understand the person in front of me. I think these atta- this the, the history is key, and then also how these early attachments replay or re- manifest in the person's present life. Because the you know a lot of people come with presenting issues that will, in most cases, link back to early attachment history, and so that linking. That going back and forth, linking present issues with past, uh, with, with the past, is a very important uh, aspect of any psychotherapy, I think. And then learning how to build secure attachments, uh, you know, later in life, which is no easy task, and that does happen, you know, through the relationship with a the therapist. That you know, we are also modeling that that frequency, that once weekly or twice weekly frequency, that relationship building uh, with, with a therapist and also encouraging uh, that to happen with other people in the person's life. So there is a, I suppose, a, a reworking of what relationships mean if those relationships have been ruptured in the past and how to create a different model, a, a healthier model in the present. And, you know, that sounds simplistic. It's very, very difficult work, you know, for the for both the client and the therapist. Yeah. And, and another important aspect is not just linking uh, past and present, but also what manifests in the relationship with the therapist in the here and now. And being able to work with that, because, of course, uh, the, that is also a relationship where familiar patterns will replay. In relational psychotherapy, we, we're very much working with what's in the room. And so when these things emerge, we can catch them and uh, hopefully be able to, to discuss them in the in interpersonally. So to bring it back into the relationship uh, that's happening right here, right now. Right. I think, you know, doing this kind of work that I do and that I think you infuse into the work that you do, there is a different way of operating with people. I think like, for example, if someone sits down for a first session and just starts sharing so much about themselves, I'll sometimes slow them down because I think they are used to oversharing or feeling like that's going to make me like them, that they opened up 
or it's a compliment to me. They're sort of, I think, wanting me to feel good about them. But I will sometimes say, you know, I'd I'd almost rather you start by asking me questions about me, not personal questions, but just finding out if I'm qualified to listen to what you're about to tell me. Because just because I'm sitting in this chair, like just because you had been in a place where someone was the guru or someone was on the stage or whatever else doesn't mean they're qualified to help you uh, or that they have the answers. So do your due diligence, check me out. I you know, find out if I have the ability to help you before you open up and then also open up a bit, test me, see if you like how I'm responding. If I have something to offer, or if I'm making you feel shame about what you're, you know, if it feels similar to what you dealt with in the past, hopefully that doesn't happen, but just sort of guiding people to keep themselves safe during the process and not just giving it all over to the person in a position of authority. Absolutely. I think that's such an important part of uh, kind of being able to to model boundaries and to slow someone down. I think, yeah, boundaries. You talked about boundaries earlier and children who grow up in cults and and, uh, people who become part of cults. I mean, there are no boundaries because everything belongs to somebody else. You know, your life uh, is in the hands of somebody else and uh, it's not your own. And and so that has to be relearned and especially a child who has been indoctrinated and has lived in that way their whole life, you know, to to start um, recreating those boundaries and those barriers, you know, and, and saying, actually, no, <laughs> no, I mean, here is, you know, where, where I end and that that's where you start. And, um, you know, that this is my space uh, and this is something I had to do as well, in, 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 you know, to learn where, where my personal boundaries were. And I, as a result, became extremely boundaried. <laughs> Right. The pendulum swing to the other extreme for safety, really, I think. And then you can settle somewhere in the middle. But I think based on what you've provided for yourself, who you've invited into your life, if you know that they are safe, if you can trust yourself to say no and know that saying no is a complete sentence, you don't have to justify it. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't have to apologize. That idea of the pendulum uh, swinging the other way, and then and then eventually there's a there's a middle, right? And uh, it you know it goes. <laughs> I've seen it with myself, and I see it with other people as well. That uh, yeah, it goes from one extreme to the other, and then eventually it finds its place. And I, and that might be a necessary thing to to go through, just to show that you can do that. You can say no, mm-hmm. if. Rajneesh or Sheila had come to you uh, for therapy, not that they would because they're perfect. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> what what would be your diagnosis of Rajneesh or your diagnosis of Sheila? I've been learning more and more about that, which I think in his case, he definitely had a, a narcissistic personality, which was very well disguised because, uh, you know, extremely well disguised actually uh, from, I mean, not, not looking back right now, but I think he did come across as somebody who was quite humble and, you know, who was unassuming and so on and so forth. But if you look at his the, the decisions that that he made and the the Rolls Royces and all the all the diamonds and all the uh, <laughs> you know the money and the and the the many allergies and physical ailments that either were real or fabricated who knows but you know the, the that he from the start had very much to to 
uh, he had to be special uh, in so many ways. Yeah, and uh, he used people as experiments. So uh, you know, he experimented on on people and and always objectified them. So there, you have uh, somebody with a with a narcissistic personality uh, for sure. And I think with, with her is uh, it, it very much the same. Uh, you know, she she also needed to be. She was a second in command, so you could give her a different, uh, a slightly different diagnosis. She had to be like a closet narcissist, but she wasn't very much in the closet at all. I think she was very much center stage, and then eventually took over. Actually, he, she, she in some ways outsmarted him, then left and you know, started forming her own thing. Uh, so I mean, they, they were both extremely narcissistic, uh, and and. Whether it's it was personality disorder territory, I would say so. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gone as far as it did. Right. Okay. So so interesting. It's so good to speak with you. Was there anything else that you wanted to to mention, or where people can be in touch with you if you want that, or if you have a website, any any place where people can can learn more from you? Well, I do have a a practice in in Brighton, uh, in East Sussex, um, in Lewis, uh, and um, I work with individuals and and couples. I wouldn't call myself a, a cult expert or anything like that because you know it's it's not something that I chose to to go into. But of course, through my own experiences, I can relate to a lot of people who have been through similar experiences. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't narrow my practice just to, to that because I enjoy working with people from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences. Yeah, and our website is brightonandhovepsychotherapy.com. Good, good. It's always good to find out about resources, uh, either, as you're saying, cult experts or people who are just very cult aware. All right, it's been lovely to speak with you and to get to know you and get to hear your story and to find out how your life has transformed and how you've worked hard to transform it since leaving and, and to develop a good, safe existence, which is a lovely thing. I'm so glad you're getting to enjoy that now. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Rachel, and so lovely to talk to you also with your expertise and your knowledge. And um, yeah, you have this lovely, soothing voice and, and you're a great interviewer as well. So I was looking forward to this conversation. And- okay. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it was you. wonderful. Thank you. Okay, okay, sure. I hope we get to speak again. Okay, take care. You too. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Sam. It was such a powerful, powerful conversation. There's so much that we went over that I really enjoyed speaking with her about and could have talked to her for a lot longer about. There's so much that she had to share with us about this really important point, especially of her mother having doubts and then overriding them. I hear about that happening time and time again, where people have questions and then They've learned that having those questions means that they're not being spiritual enough or they're not being open-minded enough or they're not as advanced or somehow able to be able to take it all in and believe it all. They're not as enlightened as they should be. There's so much self-doubt that is built into this system where if you have any questions, then you look inward rather than maintaining your focus outward where it needs to be, where 
you look at your environment and say, is this really what this was promised to be? And you look at the people in the environment and you wonder if they're really the people who are providing you with a life that they said they were going to provide you with, and if they're safe to be around, and if they really care about you unconditionally. There is something very powerful also about coming out of a situation like this where you have been really trained time and time again to believe that if anything good happens, it's because you're involved in that group. Or if anything good happens, it's because of the leader. If anything good happens, like if you're in a controlling relationship, it's because of your controller who has made it happen for you or has been able to make it happen for you, even though you have made their life harder, they still have pushed through and have been able to make things successful in spite of you. There's so much negativity placed on the self. What happens though, when you are supposed to be giving all the credit to other people is that you also get the message of the converse, which is that you then are responsible for anything that happens that's bad. One of the things that a client once said to me was that they liked being able to have it be so clear. They liked having it be where they really felt, they really believed that if anything bad happened, it's because they hadn't prayed enough. It's because they haven't devoted themselves enough. It's because they hadn't been in service enough. It's because they hadn't cleansed their mind or freed their heart or whatever it was. And it all made sense having that very strict formula. The problem is that if you have this thing that I call a spiritual placebo or a psychological placebo, you think that you are getting to this better spiritual place using that right now because of talking about, you know, Rajneesh and it being supposedly this very spiritual environment, but that you're getting there because the leader has led you there. You ascribe credit to them. And why do people need to do this? So much of what you do by giving it over to somebody else is that you then can see them as someone who is so powerful someone who is worthy of your devotion, someone who is worthy of your sacrifice. Because if they don't have this power, then why are you there? If they don't have this power, why have you left your life to be there? If they don't have this power, why are you maintaining this life where you're suffering in service to them? And when you notice that maybe you had something to do with it, something good happening to you, it can really help empower you. It can make you see that you actually are a player in your own life. You can make things happen. And the truth is that you can actually make things happen much more so than a spiritual leader can. A spiritual leader can help you see different possibilities in you, but they don't have these magical powers from the way I look at it. But they make you think that it's possible for them to do these things for you. And that's the placebo effect. And sometimes it really works. Sometimes people do have these moments of awe, these moments of great spirituality, these very ascetic, ethereal, wonderful moments of this sort of simplicity and beauty. And you feel that you're floating above because the person who you're with has said they can provide you with this. But at the end of the day, psychologically speaking, you have provided yourself with this. 
And you may have needed the promise of this other person providing it for you as a conduit for you being able to have these moments. But really, it was you. And that's not to rob you of you being able to look at certain people in this exalted way. It's to give you a gift. It's to help you know that it's possible through you. And so then maybe, just maybe, you don't need this person, this group, in order to have these moments, in order to have a better life, in order to have this sort of spiritual epiphany or sense of calm or a sense that things are possible. When you give the power over to somebody else, it can feel so good to know that or to feel like you are in someone else's capable hands. But just make sure that if you do that, you hold on to this sense of confidence in you, that you can provide yourself with it too, so that you don't have to stay there forever, no matter how you're treated, in order to have those experiences. And that you can provide that for yourself also outside of that environment. How nice it is, I think, to know that, to know what is possible just through you to know where you can take your own life and that a spiritual leader isn't the reason that you got there. But it can be that that spiritual leader helped you get there, made you feel like it was possible. Just don't give all of your power away to anyone else and feel like you can't get there without them. Because at the end of the day, then, that doesn't create a better spiritual life. It just creates more dependency. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.